everyone, and welcome to Functional Fertility, the podcast designed to demystify your hormones, up-level your lifestyle, and supercharge your fertility potential. Do you ever um, do time by, I better have a baby by then? And that was totally me. It would be like, you know, I'd make my dental appointment for six months from then, and I'd think, well, I better be pregnant by then. I don't know if I can have this dental appointment, you know? Like, I might have appointments or, you know, and so I, I defined myself by that outcome. I'm your host, Dr. Kalia Waddles, and today's topic is one that's on the minds of many couples struggling with infertility. Fertility medications. We'll explore different types of fertility meds, how they work, and what you can expect during the treatment process. I know this can be overwhelming, so I'm bringing in the expert advice of my dear friend, Dr. Natasha Stamper. Natasha is a clinical pharmacist and online fertility coach with an incredible story. She actually found her love for all things fertility while living in a remote Alaskan village, navigating her own IVF journey. After many miscarriages, two ectopic pregnancies, and one cervical ectopic, she had her two miracle babies. Now with over 12 years of clinical pharmacy experience and her own lived experience, she is so excited to be helping families all over the globe fulfill their dream of making their family complete. It's always a joy to chat with you. Welcome to the show, Natasha. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. You are just a blessing and I love you so much and your advice and you're just super, super kind. Well, we have a long friendship going on. And so this means a lot to me to have you here. And I have to say, you are the queen of helping couples navigate their fertility medications. And I know you learned a lot from your own experience, including how to organize your fertility meds. This might be an underappreciated challenge that couples face when they begin their IVF journey. So I was hoping we could start out today learning a little bit about some of the most common mistakes you see couples making when they're trying to organize all their fertility meds. Yeah, definitely. So in my um, story, I lived in, like you said, the remote village. So I have had a hard time even getting the medications delivered to my home. So in that case, I got creative and I was able to get them shipped to my clinic in Seattle because of course, as we'll talk about, a lot of them are refrigerated. So we didn't want them to be stuck somewhere on a tarmac and be in trouble that way. So, um, I guess my big tip is I think we need to remember that the one of the biggest costs of fertility treatments is the medications. Definitely. So we have to be very careful in how we treat them. Um, so my main recommendation is the minute you get that big box, it's tempting to just, you know, put it aside. It's overwhelming. Put it in the back bedroom until you need it. But definitely do not do that. You want to unbox it. Go over everything with your clinic, with your pharmacist, what needs to be refrigerated, what doesn't, how you should store it, where you should store it, um, things like that. I don't know. I was so excited to get it to get started. I was like ready. I like to have a plan. That's me. So I jumped right in. But some of my patients or clients, they also are like, I'm not ready. Let's just set it aside. And I'm always like, wait, open it. Let's look at it. Let's talk about it. Um, So that's my biggest, you know, beginner. Um, The next thing is... um, you could just do what feels good to you. Like some people like to get the little caboodles and organize. I think those are adorable. Um, I was more of like a what's around the house kind of girl. So like I had my mason jars and a little plastic drawer that I pulled out, you know, things like that. Um, but it's all kind of what what works for you. And then some people just like to do it to be pretty. I saw one of those beautiful little carts from Amazon. I had it in my stories recently. Um, they come in like pink and teal and they had it all done up as an IVF med cart. So I thought that was cool. 
Wow, I kind of like that idea of taking something that might be intimidating and putting your fun spin on it. You mentioned caboodle, which I haven't thought about caboodles in so long, but I would have that thing covered in stickers and affirmations and notes to myself. Natasha, is that part of your work when you're doing fertility coaching is that you're helping couples understand what their style is in terms of organizing their meds? Yeah, I think so. I don't think I've ever really thought of it like that, like a style, but I I do, I kind of go with what my, my client or patient wants and how, how it makes them feel. So if they're, you know, anxious and they don't want to talk about it and they want to put it away in the room for a while, that's fine. But if, you know, we can get excited about it and we talk a lot about partners and involving your partners and that support and even just best friends, I had my best friend come to my house. I'm not even kidding you every morning because my husband worked the night shift and she would give me my progesterone and oil every morning before work. And then we go to work. So it's just whatever works for you, you know, and I just try to feel that vibe and kind of run with it. Everybody's different. Well, as everyone is figuring out their style and getting organized and understanding what needs to be in the refrigerator, Do you recommend any strategies for reminders of when to take your meds? Is it a planner, a a whiteboard? What suggestions do you have just to keep on track? Yeah, I love that. So we all carry one of these, a cell phone, right? Um, So that's my biggest tip. Put it in your calendar, put it in your cell phone, set an alarm. Trigger shot, we can talk about later. You're going to set an alarm to set an alarm for that one. So there's some important ones that we'll talk about. Um, But I do have some um, clients that like to just, they're visual, right? So they like to have a planner or they like to have a calendar or a whiteboard. Um, Personally, I did have a big calendar that I had on the fridge and I would like check everything off because for me, it was like the next step. I'm such a planner and I like to be in control and in IVF and fertility, we're not in control very often. So it's kind of one thing that we can take control of, you know, in a way and, and put our own spin on it. And like you said, style, like, I love that. Like I totally I don't think they had caboodles when I was doing IVF. I didn't know about it. I would have had one with stickers too. So I think that's a really good point that sometimes when you're you're utilizing IVF, everything feels uncertain. It feels out of control. But this is an area where you can really take charge, be proactive, participate in your care. So I think that's a really, really healthy point. Yeah. You mentioned the progesterone and oil. I have to say that was a real friend supporting friend moment that your friend came over and and, and did that for you. I get so many questions about this and I can imagine you get even more because we know that that intramuscular progesterone, it can hurt. It is. And it's so important. Yeah. I, I saw you, you recommended um, on your social media that you actually don't use ice. Sometimes people do that. They'll try to like ice the area first and then they'll do their injection. Can you tell us a little bit about why we shouldn't ice and what we might do instead to help make that injection more comfortable? Yeah. So I going back to my patient or the person, if ice is your thing, that's totally fine. It's not going to make or break you. So I just want to put that out there first. It's whatever you feel comfortable with, but there is a little reason behind it that I like to explain to people. So progesterone and oil is compounded in oil. And another little thing that people don't always realize is sometimes it's peanut oil. So we have to watch out for peanut allergies, not as much anymore because of that, but that's always something to think about. Um, The biggest one I see these days is um, called ethyl oleate and it's um, a thinner oil. So it actually um, uses a less, a smaller gauge needle. Sorry. Um, So that's kind of nice. But, but most patients that I see and we talk, it's usually um, sesame oil. 
So that's the case, but oil is viscous. So it's very thick. So when we warm it up, it helps thin it out. And actually if our muscles is warm are warm and relaxed, then it'll actually absorb the medication better and not hurt as much afterwards. So it will have a little pinch and that's what the ice is for, but it also in the end can make you have a little bit more soreness and knots. Um, so, and then it helps the medication kind of glide easy, easier into your body, into your muscle. Cause this is an IM shot. So your progesterone and your trigger shot will be your intramuscular shots into the muscle. So I think I've heard you talk about, um, that you can warm the oil, even just by rolling it in your hands. Mm -hmm. And that'll kind of help with making it flow more freely through your needle. Yeah, definitely. Um, I had a patient, she puts it on a little heating pad to warm it up. Um, someone puts it under their armpit, you know, I ah. personally would stand by with a fireplace in Alaska. So I'd warm my little hiney up and okay, I'm ready. <laughs> but, um, I don't know why I never laid down for those shots. I always stood and my husband always did it for me and he loved to count and tease me. I guess it was our banter. It drove me crazy. I'm like, just do it. I don't care, <laughs> but it's just whatever yeah, just whatever makes you comfortable. Um, but yeah, I mean, you could put it in your bra if you wanted just to warm it up a little bit. Yeah. And then maybe warming the area. I'm such a fan because I get neck pain all the time. I have those buckwheat heat wraps that you can warm up in the yeah. microwave. And I'm just imagining heating that up, putting it on your booty for a few minutes. Yes, definitely. They say moist too. Moist heat will help. Um, I, I'm sure your patients say too, like those knots are painful. And that's another one of my good tips is to make sure you're rotating sites. So if you do the left little cheek, you do the right cheek next time. And then always look. And if you see a knot, don't ever inject into that knot. Try to stay away from that area. Yeah, great point. Sometimes um, I've heard the question of, well, after I do my injection, I want to rub the area. Is that okay to do? You know, I think with progesterone and oil, if it's warm and you're rubbing it, that might help absorb it a little better. I don't know if it's going to hurt. It might irritate it too. I guess it depends on the patient, yeah. but I always did that. I guess it was just like a psychological thing for me. Like it took the pain away. Yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. I always do that after B, B vitamin injections. It just feels good to, I, know. I don't know, just your brain, your brain a little bit. Yeah. yeah. It's like when you're getting a pap smear and they're like, wiggle your toes because you're thinking of your toes and not. Yeah. Totally. We employ all of these tactics. On this topic, uh, you're obviously, as a pharmacist, an expert in medications and how medications combine. Are there some over-the-counter medications that we should be avoiding during fertility treatment? Yeah. So when you're signing up and you're doing all this, your provider will usually give you a bunch of paperwork. So it's very important to go through all of that. And usually they talk about NSAIDs, which are non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Um, and so NSAIDs are like Aleve, Ibuprofen, Motrin, Naproxen, things like that. Actually, aspirin is considered an NSAID. However, a lot of patients, my, my, I did myself, my doctor put me on an aspirin when I was going through treatments because of some of my, my history. So it just depends that you may see that and that is okay, aspirin. Um, the reason behind this is that they don't want that you don't want to interfere with the anti-inflammatory response because of when the egg ruptures from the follicle. It's a it's a response, right? And so you don't want to stop that. 
And there's some studies that say that it could. There are more animal studies than clinical studies that say that NSAIDs can interfere with ovulation. But I think it's important. Always ask your provider. Look at the paperwork. And for the most part, uh, my patients have been told not to take like an NSAID like ibuprofen. And Tylenol is fine. So Tylenol is a good pain reliever. Um, and then you also kind of want to watch out for antihistamines. So if you think of like Benadryl or Cetirizine, um, Zyrtec, is another name, loratadine. I'm trying to say all the brands and generics, but um, what that is, you know, if you think about it, what they do is they, they, they're anticholinergic. So that means they dry up everything and we don't want the cervical mucus to be dried up if we're in some, you know, maybe not so much IVF, but in other ways of conceiving or fertility treatments. And then also um, there is some studies that say that, um, that it can actually interfere with implantation. There's not a lot of strong data on that, that I could find. And maybe, you know, a little more probably on that than I do, but, um, but I just would definitely ask. And then of course, always like herbs, we've talked before you and I about garlic, which it's okay in food, just be careful of like the heavy supplements. Um, there's black uh, cohosh, feverfew, St. John's wort, things like that, that are not good with fertility treatments. Yeah. I think what I usually tell people is just always check in with your doc on medications and herbs and supplements that you're taking, because sometimes like you're saying, the anti-inflammatories, I think we villainize inflammation and we're like, let's suppress inflammation as much as possible. But ovulation, as you mentioned, is inherently a bit of an inflammatory process. And so there's a balance there and, and we want to be careful with that balance. So I think that was really well said. Thank you. On the topic of, of ovulation, we have some fertility meds, ovulation induction medications that I know a lot of folks are taking. And so we should talk about that. You have done some great information comparing um, two of the most, I would say the most common ovulation induction meds, that's Clomid and Famara. Can you talk to us a little bit just briefly um, why those medications are used? Yeah, definitely. So a lot of different reasons. I personally used Famara. Um, I had a thin uterine lining, so it helped fluff up my, my um, lining. So what those medications do, as you said, um, as they induce ovulation, they decrease estrogen in different ways. So Famara is an aromatase inhibitor. It inhibits the enzyme aromatase. And then Clomid works more on our brain to decrease estrogen. There's some good and some bad. Um, and a lot of people may be alarmed. They see like Famara, it was first approved as a breast cancer drug. They, it's off-label use as a fertility drug, but it's very um, mainstream right now. Um, a lot of clinics per, prefer it over Clomid. And I can talk about for some reasons why um, Clomid does, like I said, work on our brain. And so it can um, have some different side effects. So one is a, a thin uterine lining could be one of the side effects or decreased cervical mucus. Um, but Famara doesn't have that. And for me personally, I have a higher BMI working on that, but I was scared. I thought, you know, they're going to cancel my transfers because of my BMI. You, I read all about it. And, and I did find, um, in 2013, there was a good article it's older now, but, um, where um, it said that Famara actually had a better outcome with women with higher BMIs. And so I think there's different reasons. And I think some providers are old school and they like Clomid, they know Clomid and they'll use that. And some are more into the newer Famara. And I guess ultimately it comes down to what works for you, yeah. right? Totally. You mentioned that Clomid has some side effects. And sometimes um, I find that patients are going through treatment and they're actually kind of unaware of some of those side effects, whether they just 
didn't receive that education. Or sometimes I feel like when you're in the fertility clinic and your doc is telling you, you're so overwhelmed, it's hard to even absorb all of that information. Can you just give us a little bit of a reminder of what some of those most common side effects of Clomid are? Yeah, definitely. So if you think about it, we're, we're decreasing estrogen, right? So kind of think about what happens in menopause, like hot flashes, headaches, um, bloating, irritability, things like that. Um, it's all very similar. And I felt like with Famara, I did notice some of those things. Um, and I did feel very irritable. It was, I only took it for um, cycle days three through seven. So I didn't take it for a long time. Um, but I did notice the side effects and a lot of my patients do, um, the bloating can be really bad. I always say, you know, drink as much water as you can stand, um, to help with that. And also a good tip is that in the evening, if you I guess it's important. I want to say first, make sure you talk to your doctor about when they want you to take it because timing is everything with fertility treatments. Um, but usually it's okay as long as you take it on the same day every day. So for me, I would take it at night. So I slept through some of the headache and I slept through some of the nausea, but I just had to make sure every night from days three through seven, I took it at the same time every night. The pro tips. I knew you would have some pro tips oh. for us to manage all of this. So you, we've talked about there's Clomid, there's Famara, both induce ovulation in different ways. There are some side effects. I know that Famara, as you mentioned, might be preferable in some populations. You talk to us a little bit about, are there certain demographics for whom Famara seems to be the better option? Yeah. So um, I think mostly if you're having, it depends on what, what your circumstances are. Like if you're having problems with a thin, thin uterine lining, I would definitely say Famara would be best, which was my problem from some of the research. It is um, a little older that I always go back to for myself. It was the overweight thing. Um, and also I think the side effects are less I've noticed with some of the patients I've worked with. Um, Clomid can be pretty rough. It lasts in our body for quite a long time. Um, and so it can be rough on us, which Famara isn't easy by any means, but I've just yeah. noticed that the side effects don't be, don't tend to be as severe sometimes. Yeah. I've had pretty great success using Famara or Letrozole, if that's how you know it, um, yeah. with my patients with PCOS. And I find that research seems to be supporting that. Is that something you've observed as well? Yeah, I definitely do. I, I think the research community is definitely leaning more towards Famara as a superior. Um, I, of course, if anything, there's articles on both. I mean, and I always like to see who's sponsoring those articles when I see those. But um, yeah, um, so I it just comes down to a discussion with your doctor. Like this is what, and I always tell patients, this, this is another little tip is this was hard for me. Like we're paying them, but it's hard to question them but we're paying yeah. them. Right. So we should be able to say, Hey, I saw this. I heard this. What do you think of this? And ask, you know, because some providers just like Clomid because that's what they know, or some providers do from our, because they read the research and it just depends on the provider. I think that's a great point because oftentimes we have to be our advocate in the healthcare setting at large. And so being prepared to have this conversation with your doc and say, what about my history and my circumstances is making you want to initiate this specific treatment? That's totally fair to ask that in a clinical setting. And I think that that's a great way to advocate for the most specific care for your needs. Exactly. Yes. Well, we've talked about PCOS. And so this is a great way to kind of segue into my next question because we know that our patients with PCOS are often, not all the time, but often they're working to reduce insulin resistance. 
And we have so many options. So sometimes I get this question about, um, should I use metformin? Should I just take the nutritional supplement inositol? And I know that you've shared a lot of information about this. Can we start by just hearing a little bit about how metformin works to decrease insulin resistance? Yeah, so metformin, um, it decreases the production of glucose and it helps um, the liver um, improve insulin sensitivity. So that is, it has an important place. I know a lot of people are against metformin or against pharmaceuticals and there is a lot of side effects and we will talk about that. Um, But I think there's a lot of good data out there that they do help. And I think it's a lot of um, data we've seen over time, right? And so we know that it's pretty good data because they've been studying it for a very long time. So uh, metformin is in a class they call a biguanide, and it's usually used for diabetes type two. You don't have diabetes if you're taking it, maybe you have PCOS, and that is just going to help the um, cells uptake the insulin better, basically. So I think a lot of people kind of get freaked out when they hear metformin because of it being associated with diabetes, but, and and possibly they're pre-diabetic, you know, each patient's different, but we're, we're living in a tsunami of people coming at us with diabetes soon, you know? Um, and so where I work in the native, um, population, I see this a lot, um, with just their genetic makeup, how they're made and that they tend to have sometimes diabetes more or high blood pressure. So it's something that we talk about, you know, quite often. Um, and a lot of people don't like to start metformin. I feel like they think it's, it's got a bad stigma, but it doesn't always, and it can help you. Um, and like I said, I think the longevity is there with the studies to see that it can help the women with PCOS. Um, to talk about, um, inositol a little bit. Um, it's interesting because they call it a pseudovitamin. It's known as vitamin B8, but it's not really a vitamin because if you're, um, if you're deficient in it, it's not going to hurt your body. Right. Um, and our body makes it naturally and it's found in, in healthy foods too. Um, however, they have seen that it can work similar to, um, metformin and it helps break down glucose in your body. So, and there's not as bad side effects um, associated with it. So I don't think it's a bad thing either. I think they both have a place and a time and, and, and we can even talk about later that you can actually use them together if that's what you and your provider would like to do. Yeah. You already knew that was my next question. So <laughs> we'll just go there right now that if you do choose to take metformin, which no shame in your game, you got to do what you got to do to support your health. And, um, sometimes I have the conversation that maybe metformin is the most appropriate choice for us right now. That doesn't mean you need to be on metformin forever but it's the best choice for us right now. So I I think you already kind of mentioned if you do decide to take metformin, maybe you want to take inositol as well because it's an insulin sensitizer, but it also has great antioxidant properties. It can help us sleep. It can help us relax. It's an anxiolytic. So it's, it sounds like it's safe to take those two together. Yes, it is. And some of the studies I've seen, they don't really say there's a difference, like even comparing the two there, I guess there's well, it goes back and forth. It's really unclear. And maybe you have a little better insight than I do um, if one being superior over the other. But in the end, I think anything that you could take that's a sup, you know, a natural occurring supplement that's not going to give you side effects that may help you would be probably worth it. I actually took it myself for quite a few months and I I noticed like less sugar cravings. I felt better. I had a little more energy. I didn't love mixing it up and drinking it. That was kind of yeah. rough for me. <laughs> but but I feel like it helped. And, um, and I think it would be worth a shot and definitely talking to your provider about. Yeah, there is some great research comparing inositol 
to metformin. And it does seem like they are comparable in a lot of ways. I think where inositol doesn't, isn't quite there yet is what you mentioned, this long history of research supporting metformin's efficacy. So I'm certainly seeing a lot of benefit with inositol. I was recently at um, a fertility conference that this was reproductive endocrinologist. It was a, you know, fairly conventional setting. And they were even saying inositol is an excellent option to address insulin resistance. And so I was really encouraged to see that. Um, I thought maybe this would be a good place if anyone's listening and they're like, gosh, I'm, I, I want to take inositol or I have some in my cupboard. Just like you said, I loved the the powdered form. I think it's really absorbable. I always tell patients, take it at night because it can make you sleepy. I had someone who, um, a patient wrote me and said, I am mixing this into my coffee in the morning and I'm so tired throughout the day. So I said, oh, let's make this a bedtime drink, a little wind down nightcap. And that seems to work really well. Yes. That's a great tip. And I, um, I was doing it with my magnesium at night and it kind of worked out for me. So the dream team. I use a product um, by Metagenics that's a inositol magnesium blend. So it's like a sleep dream product. I love that. And, you know, going back to insulin um, resistance, I recently was talking to a patient. She um, has PCOS and I was researching it and I told her, I said, you know, they say like 70% of patients with PCOS have insulin resistance. And she was like, you know, they say that, but they don't really explain to me what that means. And so I kind of went over with her and I, if you don't mind, I'll kind of quickly do it here. The mechanism of action, it's you and I both love mitochondria and we could go on forever with biochemistry, but it just kind of opens your eyes. So if you think about, um, your cells in your body are like a house, right. And outside of the house, there's a door. So each all over the, on the outside of the cell membrane, there's doors. Those are our receptors, right? So each receptor has like a doorbell. So anytime that we eat, um, food, it's going to bring carbohydrate into our, or glucose into our body. Right. And so that glucose needs to go into the cell and be broken down. So how does that work? So the more we eat, the glucose and insulin is raised. It sends, it rings the doorbell and inside the cell, it calls for insulin. Right. So once that door or once insulin comes, it's the key and it can unlock the door. So when you're insulin resistant, your insulin's not able to come unlock the door as well. And I was reading about it. Somebody was saying that they're, they I think women with PCOS, their doorbells aren't working. So those receptors or those signals aren't going out saying, come here and unlock the door. And that just made so much sense. And she was like, thank you for explaining that to me. No one really has. So it's, it's just interesting to me how, um, it's so interconnected, but like one little signal can just stop a whole cascade of events. Absolutely. Thank you for saying that, because I think that model is so approachable and it really helps us to conceptualize what's happening in insulin resistance. And we could probably do a whole follow-up episode on nutritional strategies, supplements, lifestyle strategies to support insulin resistance. It's a huge, really important topic. But I think our takeaway here is that we have options and that we want to release any stigma about whatever option seems best for you in this moment. Before we move on from this topic, I know you mentioned that metformin has some side effects. And so I wanted to make sure I came back to that before I forgot. Will you tell us some of those most common side effects as we're making decisions about what therapy is best? Yeah, definitely. So the biggest one I always talk to patients about is um, unfortunately stomach problems like diarrhea, um, flatulence, just an upset tummy in general. It can make you very angry. And especially depending on what foods you eat, like if you're going to eat a 
fatty chicken nugget from somewhere, it may cause some more diarrhea. Um, so you just kind of have to be aware of that. Some tips are um, metformin comes in two formulations. So immediate release, or they call it IR or ER, which is extended release. So it's slowly released throughout um, the day in your body. And it's usually once a day if it's extended release. They've noticed there's less side effects with extended release. So I like to tell patients, ask your provider, say, can I be started on the extended release? Or if you start the IR, you could take it, you know, break it even in half if it's giving you tummy trouble and take half in the morning and half at night. The IR, ER, you can't always split. So make sure to ask your provider about that. Um, and then a little tip, I, I don't know how often it happens anymore, but I remember always in pharmacy school, we were taught, um, they call them ghost tablets. I don't know if you've heard of this, but when sometimes when you go to the bathroom, the shell of the metformin ER, you'll, you'll see it in the toilet and it wow. freaks people out. So I like to kind of, I don't think they formulate them like that as much anymore, but that was always a tip that interests me. I was like, huh, I never thought about that. So, so something to think about, but I definitely would recommend or extended release. Um, it has less of the tummy troubles and you can even maybe take it, like I said before at bedtime, but you always want to take it with food. Always take it with food. Okay. These are the exact pro tips we were looking for. This is such good advice. As we're getting all of your insights, we're headed into summer. And last year, you shared some awesome information about traveling with your fertility medications. And I think this might come up as people are heading out on their summer vacations and kids are out of school. Will you tell us some of these, again, pro tips for traveling with fertility meds? Yeah. So, and as we talked before, I lived in Alaska and where I lived, you couldn't drive, you would just fly. So I became pretty good flying between Bethel to Anchorage to Seattle um, to do my treatments. My main tip is always make sure that you carry on your medication with you. Don't ever put it in your checked luggage because you don't know what's going to happen, how they're going to handle it. Um, but an important part of that is, is always leave the prescription on and have it like definitely say your name or the prescription label, I'm sorry, on and have it say your name and clearly that it's your medication. Because when you go through TSA, they're probably not going to question you. I just always had mine like in a little hand cooler. And I was like, you know, these are my medications and they were fine with it, but I would say it up front. Um, and you are allowed to carry on your supplies, like your needles, um, anything you need with you, as long as you have that with the prescription on it. Um, another good tip I feel like that I found is I would always look at the airport maps before I would go there to find like the bathrooms because um, my progesterone, my husband would give the shot for me. So I, and it's kind of uncomfortable in a stall, like giving yourself a shot. So the family bathrooms were nicer. I felt like it was more private. So I would look ahead on the maps and kind of see like, I'm in this terminal, where's a family bathroom that I could look for um, ahead of time. This is really good advice. So you would get a little cooler and that's how you would bring your refrigerated products with you while you traveled. Yeah. Like a little hand cooler. Um, and I mean, it could be anything, even just like a little bag with a little ice pack in it that you put in like a Ziploc baggie if you need to, because usually, you know, you're traveling, you're not, it's not going to be, it might be all day, or if you're traveling internationally, that would be a longer, a longer mm -hmm. flight. Um, but yeah. <clears throat> I'm just thinking um, how that I could pose, I could imagine some challenges in the timing of your medication. If you're on these really long flights that you might need to remember to take your meds or maybe even, maybe even do an injection on an airplane. Yeah, that would be tough. I, the sharps container, you could carry your own sharps container, I guess, but um, I, I'd have to remember in the little bathrooms, if they're sharps containers, I don't remember. That would be a lot to work with. 
Yeah. But definitely. I think this is good. Stay organized, have your cooler and really look at time. Like if you're on a schedule, look at how long your flight's going to be and make sure that that's going to work out for your, yeah. whatever you need to do. And if you're traveling internationally and there's a big time difference, definitely contact your clinic and talk to them about that. So they can make sure the timing is just right. Oh, wow. Yes. That's actually so good to think about. Okay, well, I think everyone's feeling more prepared to travel with their fertility meds after they've heard that you've done it. This is, you made it work and it was possible. Mm -hmm. Going back to the beginning of our episode, you talked about how some of the meds you might be taking have these side effects. And when we hear it's like mood changes and bloating and maybe breast tenderness, and it's a lot of things that feel like pregnancy, early pregnancy, which I think can be you know, a little bit challenging from a mental, emotional, spiritual perspective when you're going through fertility treatment. You and I have talked about how excruciating that two-week wait can be. So that time, um, you know, after you ovulate until your next period starts, what are some of your suggestions for making the dreaded two-week wait a little less stressful? I love this question. And it's so hard for me to even do it to myself, but I, I, my number one thing is to be kind and, and really promote self-love because you're going through a lot. And I think I try to communicate with my husband a lot. So communicate with your partner and say, you know, I need these two weeks that maybe I'm not going to be doing the dishes every day. Maybe I'm just going to like, you know, be scared and watch Netflix to get my mind off things. Um, that's what I did is I, and I would actually in my mind, like teleport myself, like visually, okay, I'm going to get to the 9th of February or whatever the date was. Um, yeah, because I really messed with my head on, I had a lot of two week waits, I think. <laughs> and, you know, actually waiting after the, my cervical ectopic was even worse, waiting for the HCG to come down. Not, not worse, I guess different, but still really excruciating. And I just try to stay busy, do things with friends. Although after my embryo transfers, I was afraid to like move, which is silly, but (laughs) so I think just be kind and then communicate your feelings to your family and your partner, just to kind of give yourself some grace. Yeah. I think you're right that the more two week waits you have, it can get pretty anxiety producing and pretty excruciating. I know for myself, I really had to try and not be what I lovingly call a symptom spotter. I was, it was really natural to me to every little twinge, every little symptom. I was like, it's a sign. And when you do that over and over, and then it, it doesn't actually work, I think it can be really hard on your nervous system. So I always say like, especially if you're on meds or you're hyper aware, it's really easy to, to turn everything into a pregnancy symptom. So just like, like you said, call upon all the self-care modalities, really do radical self-love and get through those two weeks and try not to spot every symptom. Yes. And that reminds me when you said that my husband actually turned our Wi-Fi off and I couldn't Google because I was the worst. Like I would hide upstairs and, and he was, it was cold. We couldn't even go outside. It was like negative 50. I don't know. And so we just sit in our house on the weekends and I just Google and Google and I'd come down. And I'd be like, I think I have this. I think it's that. And maybe this, and he'd be like, you need to stop. So we turned off the Wi-Fi for a while un- unplugged. Yeah. Well, you got to do what you got to do. And especially with the availability of all of the um, fertility forums, it's so easy to go on and Google like nine days past ovulation or nine days past transfer symptoms and read about what everyone else is experiencing and then make all these comparisons. Yeah. And that is the worst. 
I always in, say Instagram, I did not have in my day because I was like 2014 when I was going through most of my fertility treatments, which is a blessing and a curse because I wanted to find someone else that had my, you know, at the time it was my cervical ectopic. I wanted to say, you had this, did you have a baby after? Would this be okay? But I think also you compare yourself to others and that can be hard too, because everyone's journey is so different. Absolutely. I know that you've learned so much through your own IVF journey. And then as a clinical pharmacist, helping so many couples through their own fertility journeys, I'm hoping that we can kind of go back in time, if you would, and visualize what you would tell yourself at the beginning of your IVF journey, knowing everything that you know now. I actually have been thinking about this a lot lately because I did a little reel recently about what I would tell myself. And I think the biggest thing is worrying won't change anything, which is so hard to say and so hard to do. Um, But I wasted so much energy worrying and fretting and catastrophizing. And and that was hard and it is hard. Um, And I think I just being open-minded that there's other ways to build families at the time. I, I wasn't against it. I just was like, oh no, I, I had felt something was wrong with me and I had to write that wrong. I was really hard on myself. And so I would just be more kind to myself too, probably. Um, because yeah, I was really, really, really hard on myself. Mm. It is a tough time. And you reminded me with the worrying, I'm a chronic worrier myself. And I saw a quote recently that said, worrying is like putting a down payment on an outcome that hasn't happened yet. So why are you spending your energetic currency in that way? And I was like, oh my gosh, I've spent so much of my energetic currency putting these down payments on things that never happened. But I think when you're in these really emotionally charged situations, it's so easy to spend that down payment because it's loaded and you want it so much. And there's so it feels like there's so much at stake, right? Right. And it's in your face so much. I think you look at your best friend and she just has another baby and another. And I, someone put something on Instagram, like, do you ever um, do time by, I better have a baby by then. And that was totally me. It would be like, you know, I'd make my dental appointment for six months from then. And I'd think, well, I better be pregnant by then. I don't know if I can have this dental appointment, you know, like I might have appointments or, you know, and so I, I defined myself by that outcome, which isn't, great, but I think I was so consumed with it that I didn't, I couldn't think anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard the fertility journey described as living two weeks at a time, two weeks to ovulation, two weeks to getting my period again. And it's just like this two week cycle over and over and over until something happens. And that's excruciating. Yeah. And for me, I lost a lot of friends, I think, because I couldn't nurture those relationships. And luckily my husband was amazing. And I mean, it was hard. It wasn't perfect. We struggled and I ended, he put me into counseling and then I brought him with me, but that really helped. Um, And I kind of had to like come to the realization that I'm okay. If I don't get to have a baby, I will, I never was okay. I told the therapist I was okay. Let's be honest. But I tried very hard to tell myself that. Hearing your story and everything that you've experienced, I'm really deeply understanding why you have this great commitment to building community and supporting women and utilizing all of your skills and your experience to really support couples through this journey because you 
really gained this, I think, emotional fortitude through this whole process. And now you're passing that on to others who clearly like really need that support and partnership and nourishment. So I wanted to open up the floor. I know you have a number of um, virtual offerings where couples can go and get this support. Will you tell us a little bit about what you have going on? Yeah. So I have um, a new IVF planner that I'm finishing up. Um, I'm going to offer that to patients um, and and not a high cost, but a little something. Um, And I actually have a two week wait section in there. So I love that you were asking me about that. Um, And I did, I think, pretty awesome medication trackers. I have one um, in my link in bio that you can download. It's I made it a long time ago, so I've updated it. And I think it's much better because I learned Canva much better. So um, I think it's good. Um, so if you're interested in that, I'm going to be putting the new med tracker in in the next couple of weeks. Um, but that's a free download. Basically, just um, exchange your email for that. If that's something that you're interested in, it's a medication tracker. Um, and I also this summer, I'm hoping to launch um I'm calling um, it Medication Fertility Academy. So it'll be a course where we actually take a, a trip with, okay, um, what to ask, what to ask your clinic before, how to order meds, where can I find discounts? And then once you receive your medications, how to organize, and then at the end going on over, you know, exactly what is this medication? What's it going to do to my body? How do I use it? So I feel like it's going to be a really good in-depth course. Um, but it can be at your own pace. Um on how to use your medications and effectively store them. And like I said before, fertility medications are one of the largest portions of the cost. And so we want to make sure we do it all correct. And I feel like the medications are a lot of times how our outcomes are going to be, right? So we don't want to mess anything up. And so, um, and I just love helping people. I think that I was, I didn't have a lot of support. There wasn't a lot when I went through this and it just kind of heals me in a way to be able to say, Hey, it's okay. I went through this and let's talk about it. Um, and so, yeah, I've been, I also have an offering um, that I've been doing lately where it's, it's not as in depth, but I can go over your supplements and see what you're taking. I can do drug interactions for you. Um, and we can talk about just anything that you need support with. So I have two clients that I'm currently doing that with right now. And it's been kind of fun. It's a little more freeing, you know, like these courses are great. Um, but it's also nice to get to know people and say, how are you? Like, where are you in this journey and how can I help you and offer what they need? Yeah. Natasha, you have such a heart for service and I admire that so much about you, just your commitment to really supporting women and families. You have so much greatness to offer the world. And I wanted to offer my gratitude that you are spending time with us today. Thank you so much for all the insights you've shared. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. To our listeners, thank you for being with us. To our wonderful producer, Paola Martini, we are so grateful. We'll see you again soon. Did you love this episode and want to hear more? Head over to drkaliawaddles.com slash podcast where you can find more episodes on all things fertility.